In an industry filled with computer science and engineering degrees, Eric Berridge is a believer that those with an arts and humanities focus can succeed. He's an entrepreneur, a techie, and a literary believer all wrapped in one. In December of 2000, Eric helped start and build a consultancy firm known as Blue Wolf. Today, that same company has been acquired by IBM and is a leading consultancy firm known for producing its yearly report, The State of Salesforce. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Eric tells us why he values those with humanities degrees, the initial pushback he received about the state of Salesforce reports, and why the cloud has created a passion for successful IT around the world. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison host of IT Visionaries. And we have special guest, Eric, what's going on? How you doing, Ian? I am doing well. I'm super excited to chat with you today. Uh, we've been you know, fans for a while and, uh, and finally getting the chance to have you on the show. So we're going to get into you and your background building Blue Wolf, uh, what you're working on now, and everything in between. So let's get started. How did you get started in technology? I was a senior at uh, Cal Berkeley. It was uh, getting towards the end of my senior year. This was a long, long time ago, back in 1990. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was an English major. And uh, my dad told me it was probably a good idea to start trying to figure out how to get a job because they weren't going to support me once I graduated. So I walked into the Career Center at Berkeley, and there were two companies interviewing on campus. And this was before the internet. This was, for me to learn about these companies, I either had to know their brands or I had to go into the library and look up microfiche. And one company was called AT&T. The other company was called Oracle. I had obviously heard of AT&T. I had never heard of Oracle. Interviewed with both of them, AT&T, did not offer me a job, and Oracle offered me an entry-level job in their finance department, and that was the beginning of my tech career. I started commuting from San Francisco down to Redwood Shores. Larry had just built his first building, 500 Oracle Parkway, and I very slowly took my English degree and started to learn about the software business, and it, it happens a lot differently for, uh, for college graduates today. It's not quite that simple, I don't think. <laughs> no kidding. And we'll get into the Blue Wolf story here in a little bit, but I want to know, you know, you wrote a book a few years ago called Customer Obsessed. You just launched a podcast. What are you doing right now? So I left uh, Blue Wolf and IBM in October uh, of 2019, and I've taken the last six months to really just take a step back and reflect upon my 30-year career. Uh, and I really haven't decided... F- full stop what I want to do next, but I am doing quite a bit of writing. Uh, I'm advising a few small companies uh, that are that are just getting going, which is a lot of fun. And we just launched a podcast around Customer Obsessed, where we are interviewing business leaders and entrepreneurs and, and learning how they're engaging with customers in this digital age and, and how they're driving customer obsession, which we're big believers in. And I'm spending a lot of time with my family and uh, just kind of taking it organically one day at a time. So this episode will be a little bit different from our traditional IT visionaries, you know, diving into a particular topic, because I, I want to go really deep on you founding Blue Wolf and the rise of this company that has been truly a unique company built in in this technological age. And I'm just endlessly fascinated. We know a bunch of folks at Blue Wolf. We know a bunch of folks at IBM. And, uh, and I'm super interested to, to dive into it. So when, how did the company first come about? Uh, what, was the, what was the idea behind this? Our original idea was to disrupt the professional services industry. And this was, you know, to, to fast forward from my first day at Oracle in 1990, uh, I was now sitting in, the, it was the end of 2000, 
Uh, I had left Oracle. I, I was at Oracle for about eight years. Uh, Oracle had actually moved me to the East Coast. Uh, so I had been living in Manhattan uh, with my fiance for uh, a, a period of time and uh, was part of a startup that was a high-flying e-commerce software company that uh, was part of the dot-com rush. We went public and uh, I ran the East Coast for them at the time. It was a company called Innerworld, competed with organizations like Broadvision, Blue Martini, BEA, uh, IBM WebSphere. Uh, and we were really one of the companies that was helping organizations to go online and sell their products for the first time. The company did, did very well for a very short period of time, went public, stock went to 90, and within six months was just about bankrupt. Uh, so I'd kind of seen a rise and fall of, of the dot-com software company. But during that time, we had become very familiar with the professional services business because we relied on the large systems integrators to implement our products. And we worked with Arthur Anderson and Pricewaterhouse and KPMG and, and a lot of these big names. And there was also a whole slew of dot-com birthed services firms like Sapient, uh, who are still around, companies like Razorfish, uh, US Web. And we had just watched these consultancies come in and pitch these long multi-year projects that never ended, that never actually had real outcomes that were really fraught with risk. And uh, a colleague of mine, Michael Curvin, and I took a step back and said, you know what? I think we can disrupt this. I think organizations are interested in time to value and they're less interested in spending millions and millions of dollars on these software projects that appear to be never ending. And again, that was a long time ago. That was right before, really right before 9-11 when we started Blue Wolf. We opened a little office in Manhattan on 20th Street. It was above a gun club and we had about 800 square feet that we shared and we just started calling customers, asking them what they needed. And from there, we started a services firm. Yeah. I mean, what was the state of the ecosystem at this point? I mean, like for our listeners, you know, for our CIO listeners who were, who were, you know, in IT back then, like how did IT shape the business world and vice versa? Like what was the state of affairs? Cause you know, one of the big things with Salesforce specifically for years was that they were kind of selling around IT. It was like kind of mm. one of the big things and kind of, you know, upsetting a lot of CIOs who were not involved in that process. And we've actually talked to some folks on our on our podcast marketing trends about like shifting that mindset and how to include IT in the conversation and things like that. But I'm just curious, like what, what with these massive implementations and these multi-year timelines, like what was the state of what was the state of affairs? Well, there were two things going on. Um, you had, you know, the internet was all the rage. And CIOs were trying to figure out, I mean, they were trying to figure out how to launch websites. And if you really look back on what they were trying to launch, it was pretty simple stuff in today's world. But back then it was really complicated and integration was complicated. So you had this internet boom, but then you also had the Oracles, SAPs, Microsofts. You had all the BI vendors like MicroStrategy, Business Objects, Cognos. You had, you know, the, the, you had all of these massive software packages that were all on-premise that all required the CIO to sign contracts with a hardware vendor, an application vendor, a database vendor, sometimes a web application server vendor. I mean, your stack involved this multi-pronged contracting approach where all the versions had to line up correctly, all the patches had to be applied correctly. And to get that stack to work, was it was a freaking nightmare. And so, you know, we didn't start in 2000 working with Salesforce out of the gate. We were aware of Salesforce. I knew Mark from Oracle and we were kind of following them, but they were so small. Yeah. In their early days, it literally looked like they were just going to kind of be a competitor to ACT or maybe Goldmine. You know, it didn't really look feasible that they were going to be able to go after the Siebel's and, and move upstream. But what, what was going on is these CIOs had bought so much of this software, they were mired in the muck of trying to get all this stuff to work. And you're right, Mark did an end around. Salesforce just started slowly selling to the business and, and 
We started working with them probably about 18 months into our existence. I ran into Mark at a conference in New York City. And he said, look, you got to build a practice around my product because I'm going upstream. And so we started immediately hiring people around it. And the first three or four years, five years, we just sold straight to the business with Salesforce. And the CIO was off still tending to this other stuff, uh, which you know was, it was well, well before the word cloud had been termed. Uh, early on, Salesforce was calling it on demand. It then got labeled SaaS. It then got labeled probably not until, I don't know, 06, 05, 06, it got labeled cloud, maybe 07. But you're, you're right, like the, the incumbent CIO, their world was completely ignoring what was going on with these future cloud companies because they just had so much stuff on their plates. Um, and our, our timing actually was perfect because truth be told, we didn't really know a lot about professional services. We just observed it from the sidelines, but we knew how to sell. We knew how to get in front of CIOs and all of a sudden, because the market corrected and because there was the dot-com crash, all of the consultants and resources were looking for work. So it was very easy for us to attract them into our company as we were selling into this dysfunctional world. Well, yeah. So what were those 18 months like before kind of you, you made, you saw that, you know, supporting Salesforce was, was the way to go. Like, like how many employees did you have? Who were, what were that? You said that you were great at sales. Like what were those sales conversations like? Who were you talking to? What was the scope of works? Like, well, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, our first, I'll say our first year, but it was probably really our first two years. Michael and I literally sat at our desks every day and forced each other to make at least 50 cold calls. And we tracked those calls on little sheets of paper. Uh, we didn't use Salesforce out of the gate. We actually used ACT. We tracked all of our activity and we started in the tri-state area. So we primarily started um, in New York City and, and we just networked our way into companies. And what the conversation we were having was, look, we know you have all this software, Mr. CIO, that you don't know what to do with that you've bought over the last three or four years, and you can't now afford to bring in the big consultancies because your budgets have just been stripped. Mm. You've got to show some value back to your, your business. And so we started to hire these consultants in the marketplace that were the good ones. And a lot of them were taking pay cuts. A lot of them were just looking for work. And so in a weird shift, we were able to get the best consultants, mainly around technologies, like Oracle and some of the business intelligence products that I, that I named a few minutes ago. And the CIOs just ate them up because they were out of trying to sign these multi-year agreements with the big firms and they wanted to work with boutiques. And Blue Wolf came to market as a boutique at the perfect time. Uh, and then the Salesforce stuff started to kick in and you know that became our ultimate calling card. Well, you know, it reminds me of when um, the shift to digital marketing kind of started taking over and people would go to their monster ad agencies and be like, Hey, what is your strategy for like marketing automation or, you know, or these, you know, kind of growth hacky sort of things. And then they'd have to go to boutique firms who were just taking people that were super sharp at, uh, you know, a handful of things like SEO or whatever it is that the larger companies didn't have capacity for. But the interesting thing that you were kind of saying there is like how the market kind of adjusted to the fact that like they didn't have the budget for the big firms. So the even the those larger firms business models and the kind of for lack of a better term the bloat or the scale that they had achieved actually worked against them into to fight and win those, you know, those deals that you're like, "Hey, we can do this for a fraction of the price and you're going to get the same level level of talent." 100%. And and we we would we I mean we had back then, you know, and I'd have to dust off the archives to remember exact messaging, but we would go in front of CIOs and say, look, let's pick something where I can get you live in 90 days. Yeah. Tell me, let's talk about an initiative where 90 days from now, you can go to the business and say, okay, this is working now. What they were buying is they were buying that sort of message, but they were also buying the fact that we had the best experts that we could get in front of them. And at the end of the day, customers want to buy expertise. They don't want to necessarily buy scale. Sometimes they have to buy scale. But if they have to pick between expertise and scale, they'll typically lean towards expertise. And even in the, in the early days when we were first doing Salesforce work, we had the best Salesforce consultants on the planet. And, and I'd argue that we still do to this day. Uh, but back then, 
the Accentures and the Deloitte's and the Capgeminis, they didn't have anyone. They, they were caught f- so flat-footed with the advent of the cloud that we would win big deals because I could just put the smartest people in front of the client in, in, in a much quicker fashion than, than the big firm ever could. So that was kind of our David and Goliath uh, approach. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, because you know, you hear a lot of CIOs now that we interview on this show or, you know, that talk behind the scenes about, you know, how important quick wins for the business are. Like in your first 90 days as CIO, whether you're a first timer or otherwise, like getting quick wins for the business is super critical. I mean, like almost every single, you know, CIO that we've had on the show and talking about first 90 days is like, get in, understand the ins and outs of the business, understand the ins and outs of how the product is sold. Like make sure you understand exactly who the different, you know, folks are in the organization that need to corral those resources and then find a project and get a win uh, to show that you know what the heck you're doing. And it's so funny to hear you say like that you were going to them and saying just, you know, back then, hey, I can get you going in 90 days because it seems like that's it's the same sort of thing that people want now. Totally. And the, the beauty was when Salesforce came along, like we were telling customers that in, in the middle of an Oracle project, we, we'd be like, look, let's bite off something on top of Oracle 11i, which was their application stack at the time. And let's do something that you can get live in 90 days. Let's forget about the big bang. Then when Mark came along with Salesforce and this thing was already working and it didn't require the CIO to buy any hardware or software or storage, it was secure. We could configure it. Like 90 days became easy. Like we had projects where we get clients live in a week or two weeks. And the business, well, first of all, the CIOs wouldn't believe that message initially because they had just been so damaged with how complicated software had become. But when that started happening, like light bulbs just started going off. And the funny part was the big guys still ignored it for a long time. And the reason the big consulting firms ignored Salesforce for a long time, when I say a long time, I would say, if you really looked back, Accenture didn't really start going with the Salesforce practice until probably 2008, 2009. So we had a good eight years of runway where the big firms couldn't get into this space because most of their resources were so focused on technology, how to install a database and how to upgrade and patch and how to run hardware that the real skills that the business needed, which were, let's talk about your business process. Let's talk about the change management required to get your sales organization or your service organization to use this new technology. They weren't tuned up for those sort of conversations. And we built our whole business around it. You know, I never had a lot of technical consultants. We always had business process consultants. We had people that could speak the language of the business and then could take a product like Salesforce and very quickly turn it on its head to mimic that business process. So it was a great run. Yeah. I mean, so what what was the response from CIOs? Because like I would imagine that if you know one of the biggest struggles is speaking the language of the business and understanding those those processes and the playbooks like what is your CRO running like what you know what are the what are the different things what's the motion what is your marketing team doing to drive demand gen like all those things that you know if those folks don't necessarily can't speak that language how fortuitous to have a consultancy that does speak all of that language that can kind of be the blend between the technology and the business side. Like I'd imagine that that was received really well, but also potentially could have been received poorly from some folks. Well, I think initially CIOs were in denial. They just didn't believe that the cloud could be as productive and as, as quick of a time to market engine as it really was. Uh, But then the good ones woke up and said, wait a minute, this thing is going to completely change the arc of my career because it is going to be so much more feasible for me to prove value in front of the business. You know, those are the CIOs that started showing up at Dreamforce 12, 13 years ago and really jumped on the bandwagon and then figured out a lot of these applications and have completely restructured their shops. And it's, it's been, you know, the cloud has been an incredible engine for CIOs to grow their careers uh, over the past you know, 10 to 12 years. But early on, there was, a, there was a, a big sense of denial. And quite frankly, early on, Salesforce was trying to ignore the CIO. You know, they were trying to get stuff done without the CIO knowing. Um, obviously, that 
you know, that was that that changed as they really started doing business with bigger companies. But I think to your real question here, the beauty of this thing is a good services firm today absolutely takes ownership of that ongoing translation that happens between IT and the business. Uh, because there's always a little bit of a language disconnect and that the IT organizations that can work with someone to take ownership of that conversation and provide transparency back to the business and continually prove that they're providing value. Uh, those are the ones that, that really help organizations to grow and, and help organizations to be innovative. Well, and I think it's really interesting that you know, a hallmark of your career has been about being customer obsessed. And obviously, you know, that's why you, you know, wrote the book and, and just started a podcast about it. But, you know, the idea that if you're truly helping, you know, if, if the people that you're working with, if their customers are the most important things, then you need to understand what their customers are going through. Like, if you don't understand that, then fundamentally, you're not going to be able to corral resources and technology around solving those problems. I would imagine that that was not a popular way of thinking for other consultancies. Am I wrong? I think it was a cultural shift for the consultancies that had legacy cultures, that had legacy resources, and that had really been making their hay by just providing technology resources into IT shops. You know, the, the new consultancies and the ones that have leveraged the cloud the best are the ones that realize that the tough skills are what we used to call the soft skills, uh, but they're actually tough skills. And how do you work a room? How do you drive requirements and business outcomes out of business leaders? How do you tell the business that they're wrong and that what they're trying to do is actually not the right approach if you're going to achieve the vision that your CEOs set forth. So as a consultancy, we were always working on the tough skills. You know, we knew that we could figure out the technology. I mean, that's becoming the, the, the easy commodity to learn. The tough commodity to learn in this day and age is how do you really help businesses define who they are and where they're going and how they can use technology as an enabler? Because technology is never going to be the thing that's, that's going to carry the day. Your people are, your brand is, your innovation, the level of innovation that you can provide a marketplace is. So that's really where we spent our time. And that was fun. Yeah. And one of the things that you did, which I found extremely fascinating, is the focus on people with humanities degrees. So why did you do that? Well, for starters, to me, the irony in the technology marketplace is the most expensive skills to hire are the ones that have all of the badges and credentials and computer science degrees and, and have, you know, put the hard work into to figure out how the machine works. Those are the hardest skills to hire and the ones that you're going to spend the most money on. But to me, the skills that were the most valuable were the skills around things like teamwork and collaboration and creativity and kind of art of the possible thinking. Uh, so we started to figure out that, that we could recruit from schools and, and really all walks of life outside of the computer science ecosystems. And we started hiring artists and musicians and I hired a bartender and, and we had so many stories and still to this day do at Blue Wolf where we would take people that just had a knack for leading, uh, had a knack for creativity and we'd immerse them in the technology and they figure it out pretty quickly. You know, and these people aren't, you know, they're not writing code necessarily, but they're taking this configurable cloud world that we all live in and they're making sense of it and they're familiarizing themselves with the technology to a point where they can take a business idea and they can replicate it in these applications. Uh, and that became a, a big piece of what we were doing. So you spoke about how important it was to have essentially really smart people, the experts on your team. And at some point along the way, you decided to say, hey, we have all this knowledge, we have all these experts, we have all these ideas, and we know Salesforce better than anybody. We should make something called Stata Salesforce. Um, <laughs> how did this go down? Because I've heard, I've heard uh, Corinne, your, uh, your former CMO's version of this, but I want to hear yours. Well, so we, we decided 
pretty early on that we wanted to market ourselves similar to a product company. We decided that brand and and our story was it was important that that we looked and 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 smelled and and felt like a Salesforce did. So we invested in marketing and even product marketing in a way that services firms typically don't. Um, and this was also when the whole social media world started to explode. So we started leveraging those channels, which allowed us to look a lot bigger than maybe we actually were. And one of the ideas that we had was like, let's become the voice of reason and of and of objectivity inside of the Salesforce ecosystem. Uh, so Corinne and her team came up with this great idea to start the state of Salesforce. And I think it's now a decade old. We would publish it every year. We did a ton of very detailed surveying. We partnered one year with MIT to help us across the whole global Salesforce ecosystem. We interviewed CIOs, head of sales, marketing services. And every year we tried to develop a point of view around what customers were doing successfully with Salesforce and what customers were struggling with inside of Salesforce. It was a very honest report, still is to this day. And I think where you're going with your question was early on, Salesforce hated it. Here I was running a business that was extremely dependent upon their product and their success. And, you know, we needed their endorsement. Yet we published a report that was somewhat controversial in its early days. And uh, I remember getting phone calls from, I don't know if Mark ever actually reached out to me, but he definitely had people reach out to me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, telling us that we couldn't publish this. And, and, and look, at the end of the day, it was it supported the whole ecosystem. It wasn't trashing Salesforce. It was just trying to be this voice of object, objectivity and reason. And I, I would say that was in their less mature days. Uh, but we held our ground, continued publishing the reports. It became our biggest lead generator and, and still is to this day. And, and we use it for, you know, for a big piece of our brand. Um, after a couple of years, they came around full circle and really embraced it uh, to the point that every year when we publish it, Mark sends it out to the whole company, sends it out to all the sales force and, and says, hey, take a look at this, use it with your customers. And, um, you know, it, it really was, uh, it was always a lot of fun. We always wanted to be a little on the edge and we always wanted the world to know. And we most importantly wanted our customers to know that our responsibility, our fiduciary responsibility was to the customer. It was not to Salesforce. It was not to another vendor. It was not to any other third party relationship. Our responsibility was to report the truth and to provide our best advice to our customers. Well, it's it's so interesting because if you kind of look at it from the other perspective, like looking back on it now, where you're like, in, a, in an alternate world, if you had went to Salesforce and said, hey, we're going to do this super complex audit for the next decade of your product and talk to all these people, like they should be paying you for that, right? Like that's the funny thing is like that that level, I mean, they, at a certain point you get you realize you're like, well, this is great. This is like, we're getting customer feedback, you know, from a third party source, from a trusted source, like what it, what an opportunity to learn from the market so we can refine our product. We can do all these sort of things. It's just a funny thing in retrospect, of course, you know, at that moment in time, Salesforce was a much different company than it is now, but it's so fascinating to me. Like looking back on that, it's like, you know, to have 10 years of every single year having an in-depth, you know, look at the, uh, at the inner workings of how your customers and community feel about you. Like what a, what a gift, you know, we say feedback is a gift. That truly is yeah. a gift. No, it really was. And, you know, I think they say Mark, Mark and Salesforce have done such a great job of building an incredible ecosystem. And, and I talk to entrepreneurs all the time that are, are trying to get tighter and more engaged in the Salesforce ecosystem. And, and I tell them, I say, look, it's, it's only getting bigger and better. Go for it. You know, one of the reasons that it's been such a vibrant ecosystem, other than the fact that, you know, they've clearly built a great company and taken a lot of risk and made key acquisitions and gone global and, and you know, they built an incredible enterprise. But the other decision they made around their partner program was to keep it very open. And when you compare the Salesforce partner ecosystem 
to the Workday ecosystem, as an example, it's the wild, wild west, right? If you've got expertise around marketing cloud or service cloud, or if you want to build a product as an ISV on the app exchange, the barrier to entry isn't that high. And they do that purposely because they want to create this ecosystem that has scale and that, and that can feed this industry that has an insatiable demand for knowledge and resource around whatever Salesforce product you're implementing. Um, so we benefited from that big time. Yeah, we uh, is on a different podcast. I interviewed someone who is building up a, a, a boutique consultancy based off of a certain product. You know, he said the exact same thing. He was like, you know, I just listened to the market. A bunch of people were having trouble implementing this stuff. The technology is not that complex, but like the organizational change aspect to this is a little tough. You got to shift your marketing mindset. You got to shift, you know, how you're looking at things and companies needed help with that. And so I built this, you know, small consultancy and, you know, overnight it kind of just got a bunch, a bunch bigger, like what a cool ecosystem. And I think, and obviously Salesforce sponsored this podcast and we love them, but I think that the, the stats on, on their ecosystem is like four to one for like every dollar they make their, the ecosystem makes four. And it's like, I, I think they, they shared that stat a couple of years ago at Dreamforce. I was like, holy moly, this thing is not stopping anytime soon. If you look at that type of trajectory, you're making that much money for other people. Uh, you're going to be, you're going right. to be in good shape. Right. No, it's crazy. And like they, what the investments they've made around trailhead, you know, to get people onboarded and to get them continuing education it just feeds that ecosystem and it keeps that one to four ratio healthy and intact. And, you know, I, I, we, we built Blue Wolf out as a global company. We were in, well, but by the time we were acquired by IBM, we were in just about every country. I traveled the world uh, for several years. You know, you think it's gratifying to see the ecosystem here in North America having success. You know, imagine going to a faraway place you know, like Japan or Southeast Asia or Australia, this ecosystem's working in those places too. You know, it's not, this is not just a North American phenomenon. It's, they've created this passion and the cloud has created this passion of successful IT around the whole world, which is amazing. And I want to get into the IBM, IBM acquisition here in a, in a second, but last question on on this piece. So you said, Mark told you a while back, like, hey, you should just build a, you know, build this just for, for Salesforce. Um, I'm curious, did you have a follow-up conversation years later uh, or maybe just, you know, steps along the way where you were like, Hey, remember how you said this would be a good idea. And we were, uh, turns out, I guess we ran with it sort of a thing. Like, I'm curious, what were those conversations like with Mark over the years? Absolutely. Like he, he, he brings it up whenever I'm at an event or a dinner or, you know, whenever we're, we're in the same company, you know, he, he, he'll remind, he'll remind us all that he brought me under his wing very early on. And I'm forever grateful of that. Like he's been extremely supportive of us in an appropriate way. Yeah. You know, he's never given us some, just because I've known him a long time, he's never given us this like unfair advantage. But I think we decided early on that we weren't going to build practices around competitive products or, or even tertiary products. So as an example, Blue Wolf never built a practice around Workday. We never built a practice around ServiceNow. We never built a practice around NetSuite. And, and this seems like an easy decision now, but quite honestly, it wasn't back then when Salesforce was a much smaller company. We said, you know what? Let's just stay true to this Salesforce DNA. Let's stay true to this company. We're going to have our cat fights with them, which we did. Like the state of Salesforce was not the only time we had some friction with Salesforce as an organization. We had tons of friction over the years. We were in the seat of, we've got to make the customer successful in a real world way. They were in the seat of, we've got to market and sell software. And those two things sometimes have competing interests, but we stayed true to Mark's vision. And I think he's always respected that. And I know that we've kind of built this loyalty with him and with them because when we did get acquired by IBM, he couldn't have been more supportive. Uh, he was a big part of that. Yeah. So what, what, how, how did that happen? How did that come about? Were you looking to, for something like this or what happened? So when Michael and I started Blue Wolf in 2000, 
if we had gone out to try to raise money for a professional services firm while the dot-com crash was happening, we would have gotten laughed out of every room. So instead of raising money, we just started picking up the phone, trying to get in front of customers. Um, so we found ourselves in a pretty unique situation where we had, we never had investors that were itching for an exit. And we would always tell the company that we really didn't have an exit plan, even though, you know, that's what they teach you in business school that as an entrepreneur, or, or if you're going to do a startup, you have to figure out what your exit plan is. We never had one, but as the market became more mature and as the Accentures and the Deloitte's started having a lot of success in the Salesforce ecosystem, I knew that we could not scale to compete for the biggest deals in the Salesforce world if we didn't either A, go out and raise a ton of money and then put ourselves in a position where we weren't driving profitability. Because one of our core values from day one was to be profitable, and we always were. But again, to, to go and compete with Accenture in Singapore, you know, if I really was going to go and do that, I was going to have to go out and raise a bunch of money. Or look for an organization that already had that scale and already had a brand uh, that we might be able to fit into. And you know, the, the other thing that was important was cultural fit. Um, and honestly, there was one company in the world that met that criteria. And that was IBM. You know, we through a variety of different exercises found ourselves at the table with them, and just felt like it made sense. And uh, we executed the the agreement to be acquired back in May of 2016. But I'm a firm believer that they were the only ones out there that could have really met that criteria that that we needed, uh, and it worked. You know, we were within months doing deals everywhere around the world. You know, competing for the biggest Salesforce projects and the biggest services relationships uh, out there. And we, uh, we kind of took our Blue Wolf DNA and put it inside of the IBM machine. And it was very powerful. And Blue Wolf has a unique DNA. As I mentioned, you know, I know a bunch of folks uh, on the team over the years, and uh, it does have a unique feel. So what was that like? Like, how did you build that kind of culture? And then, you know, eventually as you as you moved into IBM, we can talk through that. But I'm just curious, like, how did you, seems like you must have been very purposeful with how, how you built the, the culture at Blue Wolf. I don't know if it was purposeful, but I know that we learned some lessons early on where we started to figure out that as a services firm, only thing we had was our people. Like I didn't have a product that I could hang my hat on and that was going to carry the day. It was all about, we were only successful if the right group of people showed up in a room in front of a client and said the right things. And, and those were things by the way, that I could script either because every client is different and every situation and project is different and every industry has a different flavor. So we early on started investing in culture. And more importantly, to invest in that culture, what we invested in were those tough skills that I talked about. Uh, we took a, a pretty healthy piece of our budget every year and focused it on getting people together and teaching them how to interact and how to create stories and how to draw. Uh, we were one of the early companies that said, you know what, we're not gonna use PowerPoint ever. And if I had a consultant, or seller show up at a meeting and open up their laptop and boot up PowerPoint, I, I'd tell them to shut it down. I'd say, I, I don't want to walk. I don't want to look at your screen. Show me what you're going to do. Uh, we, we partnered with this guy named Dan Rome, who wrote a book called The Back of the Napkin. And what The Back of the Napkin was all about is how do you communicate to an audience at a whiteboard drawing pictures with stick figures and, and, arrows and shapes and tell your story through pictures because that will create a connection with your audience that PowerPoint can never create that the spoken word can't necessarily create. And we, we taught thousands of people how to do this. So we pride ourselves on being able to walk into a room and engage a customer or a prospect in a way that they'd never been engaged before. Uh, there's that great scene from Mad Men. I don't know if you where they're, they're selling to Kodak and Kodak's yeah. trying to figure out what to call their, they were calling it the wheel, which turned out to be the slide projector. 
and Dan Draper calls it the carousel. We used to use that scene in training sessions. Like you have to create emotional connections with your audience, whether you're selling, delivering, uh, and that and that just became our culture. It, we we pride ourselves on being able to present, being able to to use humor to engage different constituents in the organization. Uh, we also prided ourselves on taking inexperience, throwing it in the deep end with a lifeline, and teaching it how to swim and teaching it how to survive. Some of our best consultants that would run massive initiatives were 25, 26, a couple years out of school, and we would provide them with protection and provide them with a strong team around them, but we would put them in that position of power at a young age uh, because that would just create this incredible confidence that was undeniable in front of a customer. So we had a lot of fun with that. You know, you mentioned always being profitable and making that kind of a hallmark of something you wanted to always maintain. That's pretty tough. And it's tough because there are highs and lows, there's ups and downs. I'm curious, like, how did you, how did you figure out how to, you know, work through those highs and lows? Um, how did you, you know, lead during times of, uh, of bounty and times of crisis? Sure. I mean, and we had our share of them, you know, we, we obviously came out of a, a, a correction and, and, and benefited from the growth between 01 and 08 of the economy. But then in 08, you know, once again, you got the financial crisis and, and we had to deal with that. You know, at the end of the day, on our toughest days, our edict was go and see a customer. Go get in your car or get on the subway or get on BART or walk down the street and go and see a customer. Uh, and, and look, I, every entrepreneur has a different per personality. I definitely had my dark days. I, I had more than one night where I was pretty sure we were, we were going out of business in, in a short period of time. But the salvation was always the customer. You get in front of the customer, you hear what the customer needs. It's more of a listening exercise than it is a selling exercise. As long as you can get in that door, customers will talk. And they're typically giving you the truth. And if you can come up with solutions around their needs, you're always going to have a business. So our profitability and our growth metrics were easier to obtain because we didn't waste a lot of time with a lot of internal bullshit. I had one individual running HR for me when IBM bought us. Wow. And we were in five countries. We were a self-governed organization. We didn't spend a lot of time on internal stuff. We invested in our people and we got in front of customers. And I think that ultimately kept us profitable and it kept us growing. Yeah, it's like uh, if you if you've ever heard, there's there's no such thing as uh, as writer's block. It just means you aren't reading enough, right? It's like <laughs> you have to fill your mind with ideas. And I think the lifeblood of of you know a company is its customers' thoughts and reactions and emotions and you know whether they be stuff that you know it's the if I listen to my customers, they would have wanted a faster horse sort of a thing. But it's like it's the it's the intuition of figuring out what people say you know, from a literal standpoint versus otherwise. I love that mantra of just, you know, hey, if you're having a bad day, get out and talk to customers um, because it it grounds you in the reality that there's always new insights and secrets to solve. Uh, and if you're always listening to them, you're probably going to be able to to create create stuff that helps them. And for you, it's not about creating a physical product. It's not about creating a software product. It's about listening to them and figuring out how to serve them better. And I, I, I love yep. that mantra. Okay. So what do you think is next for consultancies? I mean, I think, you know, obviously we have, you know, the, the global crisis going on right now, which is obviously halts travel, but beyond that, I mean, it feels like what consultants do in the future will fundamentally change. Um, or maybe not. What do you think? I think that there is always a need for a, for a third party. I think that for the right third party, I think that, uh, independent consultants are, they've become such a big part of particularly the Valley. I mean, I know you see it out there in this whole gig economy and the gig workforce. It's been branded by the fact that a lot of these companies work with independent consultants. I don't, I don't think that market's going to change dramatically. Obviously, there's been some legislation in California and there will be in other states that 
it's going to make it a little harder for, for companies to justify having a different class of worker. But I think that stuff's going to work itself out. I think the independent consultant community is mainly made up of skills. But I think for consultancies, for companies that are, are building consultancies, uh, it's about having your own unique way to go to market, to behave, and to create tools and approaches that your customers can use to think differently and to collaborate differently and to move in the direction of innovation. I think that you know there's probably never been a better time to be a consultancy. I think if you, if you just look at the macro economy in North America, I think in the last 50 years, we've gone from being a 40% service economy to almost an 80% service economy. And it's, it's kind of how we work. Uh, I think the tools that are out there today that allow consultants to be more remote, although I hate that term remote, you know, they don't, don't have to always be on site, allows individuals to, you know, the, the consultant's life used to be quite honestly a nightmare. Yeah. Right. It used to be, and, and it, there, these consultants still exist and these projects still exist where you, know, you get on a plane Monday morning and you fly to wherever your customer is and you're there all week and you're staying in a Holiday Inn Express and you're badging in and out and you're flying home Thursday night and you get to work from home Friday. Like that's the typical life of a consultant. It's honestly, it's a, it's a dreary one after the excitement of that kind of expires. This is going to change. Yeah, and, and I, I think I'm, that's I think that's good. I think that's yeah, good because for sure. I had I had so many consultants over the years that were phenomenal that I had to move into different roles because they just couldn't keep doing it. Maybe for family reasons, maybe for just burnout reasons. And one of the challenges of running a services organization is you are constantly trying to push people's careers ahead but you don't want them to time out as consultants because that's your lifeblood and your good ones. You know, you want them billing, you want them driving margin, you want them in front of your clients. So, you know, I think the new normal of zoom and the new normal of, I don't have to see your face every day is a good thing for consultancies. And I think it can lengthen the, the, the career of people that are just damn good consultants and that's what they should actually be doing. Yeah, I'm excited for this next phase because I I agree and I think I think your geography is not going to dictate the type of work that you do in the future, especially in a global economy and like that's super exciting to me. Like it's super exciting to me that you now I was talking to uh to a guy that I want to work with for my company that's in Trondheim and he's like, you know, you compare the job market in Trondheim to, you know, the job market in the Bay Area. And he doesn't want to leave. That's where his family is. That's where his roots are, you know, like that, that sort of stuff to me. And like to unlock the potential of people like that, that want to do amazing work. Um, that's super exciting to me and liberating. And I do think that the way that companies figure out how to leverage those types of talents are going to be the ones that win in the future. Yeah. Have you ever heard of a company called Mural? No. They're based in the Bay Area. They're relatively new, but they've created a collaboration platform that, you know, think about Zoom or WebEx or any of these other web conferencing products. Mural basically allows people to interact as if they're at a whiteboard online. And it's, it's, a, it's actually a fascinating platform that, that a lot of the big consultancies are starting to use because, you know, cutting down on this travel-oriented workforce helps companies from a bottom line perspective it's better for the environment and it's just better for work-life balance, you know, and that's not to say that, you know, you need to be there for the big meetings. You need to be, you need to have a, a physical presence in front of your customer on a regular cadence, uh, but just clocking in and clocking out, showing up just to show your face. Uh, I think there's a lot of wasted energy in the, in the workplace that, that we can put to better use. Well, it's about depth of the engagement, not the frequency of the engagement. I think that that's the thing that the best salespeople in the world understand, right? It's like why, you know, so much business was done on golf courses and otherwise. It's like, hey, let's hang out with somebody for five hours and we're going to talk about business for 30 minutes. But the rest of the time we're getting to know each other and figuring out what we need. And I just think that 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 sort of stuff is so important going forward. And it's like, it's, it's not about being seen. It's not about, you know, clocking in. It's about being responsive. It's about being, re being timely, 
you know, it's about, you know, understanding what people are saying. And sometimes people, I mean, I think the other piece of this is that the 30 minute time slot that everybody meets in now, because our calendars are structured that way, it just is, <laughs> is, is, is only there because that's how our calendars are structured, right? It's like, that doesn't mean that that's the optimal meeting time. And in fact, I think it actually, it actually makes it the opposite that the depth of engagements are, are, uh, you're less productive in, in, in the 30 minute meeting. You know, I think as somebody said that they switch every 30 minute to a 15 minute meeting and every hour to like an hour and a half. And they saw a huge difference in production because it's like, you can always shave off 15 and then for the super deep work, you want to go longer. So anywho, there's lots of different things there. I, I digress, but it, I think it's a fascinating thing specifically for consultants and, and how they're run in the future um, when, you know, those, those folks are on the clock to, uh, to provide value. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more, by the way, about the calendar. I've thought about that so many times, like just cause it says 30 minutes, like this could be a five minute conversation, you know, it could be a 10 minute conversation. You know, when I, when I think about how I manage people, yes, I do my one-on-ones and I, I try to have some structure in, in how I manage the employee boss relationship. But my favorite way to ma- manage people is just to speed dial them during the week when I've got downtime. And, you know, those conversations were the best conversations we had that came up with the best ideas. It wasn't the pre-scheduled meeting where everyone came in with their armor on and their point of view and, and, you know, you said your, your piece and you left like the best times building our business. Literally, we would just be freewheeling it. Well, Eric, it's been awesome having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Any final thoughts? Every, by the way, everyone check out the podcast, check out the book, Customer Obsessed. Anything else? No, it's been great, Ian. Thank you so much. I love your work and uh, anything I can do to help, let me know. And uh, hopefully we can all be out in the field again soon. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks so much. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.